We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hi, and welcome to Sot Radio Network, Behind the Headlines. I'm Joe Quinn, and my co-host this week uh, is Neil Bradley. Hello, everyone. So... You had me at hello. Yes. <laughs> Jesus. Well, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Sandman. That was very, <laughs> that's very nice of you to say so. Um, it's, yeah, it's good to be back. Yes. Good to be here. Yes, it's good to be to be here since it's been a long week. Uh, <laughs> it has, though. It's actually been a long week for me because I spent most of it trying to grapple with, uh, you know, early 20th century history and make some sense of it. Um, I was writing an article. Um, took me a few days, several days actually. Um, I'd read a lot to figure it out. How many for, books did you read? Oh, about seventeen or eighteen. Wow. No, I didn't read 17 or 18 books. <laughs> I skimmed quite a few books, and I read one in in its entirety. But, um, yeah, that was just an article I just wrote on, yeah, on early 20th century history. Why? World War I. Um, well, because over the past, since this whole Russia business has begun, or, or since it started last year, um, it's really brought that, Russia and, and the relationship between the West and Russia kind of into sharp focus. And over the period of that time, I've been, you know, been thinking more and more, looking at things that have happened and the attitude of the West towards Russia and why they're so hysterical, why they're so mad to, you know, get Russia, get Putin, you know, put them down, keep them in their place, put them back in their box. What's why they're so apparently afraid, really, of Russia, you know, so. I mean, that's been brewing for quite a long time. And, and they've been drawing on strange historical analogies. Yeah. Like, it's a throwback to Tsarist Russia or the USSR. And it's like, what? Where did that yeah. come from? Yeah, and John Kerry said, you know, when uh, Russia, or sorry, Putin himself invaded Crimea, annexed Crimea, and then when he personally invaded uh, eastern Ukraine, uh, Kerry said something along the lines of, um, you know, you don't, it's, it's, he said something about 19th century yeah. uh, Imperialism, imperialism, or so, and then they've also been making reference to, you know, some general said that they, over the past year or so, they've had to dust off their Cold War playbooks uh, in order to confront Russia. But so all of that, I just, it just eventually kind of gradually dawned on me that this, on me that this hasn't, uh, this isn't something new. This has been bubbling away below the surface for a century or more. it's been an ongoing policy for a century, century or, or more and has been covered up by all sorts of narratives. Um, but now it's kind of becoming much more difficult to cover up because for some reason these Western powers are, are much more hysterical. It seems like they feel that they're not so much in control of the situation anymore uh, and they can't create these uh, narratives and sell them to the public so easily. Uh, and they're exposing themselves, not literally, thankfully, but they're exposing themselves and their true attitude to 
and Eurasia in general, um, by, by these hysterical comments and just stuff that even the average person who doesn't really look too deeply into it is kind of drawing a blank on that one. I'm not sure what you're trying to say about or even spotting the hypocrisy of the things that they say, you know, like accusing Russia of mm. invading other countries. I mean, how can the U.S. accuse anybody of invading other countries or condemn them for invading other countries with their recent history? Yeah. So it's uh, it's just been interesting to see that really there seems to have been an ongoing 100-year-plus-long policy amongst these, these Western elite or powers or whatever you want to call them, British-American, Anglo-American uh, banking political elite, uh, that they've, for a long time they've had a, a policy of containment of Russia in particular um, but as a means to an end in a certain sense as a means to controlling the entire Eurasian continent and making sure that no competitor to the US comes out of that area uh, Russia is a problem because of its natural size uh, it's, its massive size and it's the biggest country in the world almost twice the size of the US and then you have Europe the rest of Europe or Western Europe that is, um, has a lot of people, um, a lot of uh, kind of natural resources, if not kind of oil resources and stuff, but, you know, agriculture and all that kind of stuff. So together, uh, if you put the Eurasian continent together, and if you include China, for sure, um, if there was to be a, a unified front there on the Eurasian continent between, say, China, Russia, and Europe, that would spell disaster for the people who have... Uh, put themselves in, in, in a position of being the, the rulers of the world, effectively. You know, the, the U.S., the global policeman, you know, the one that goes around spreading freedom and, freedom and democracy and um, is the arbiter of all disputes type of thing, that they would be unseated from that position if there was ever uh, a cohesive kind of unity of, of um, countries in in Eurasia, not all countries necessarily, but in particular Russia and a few of the biggest uh, Western European countries, that would be a major problem for them. And for a long time they've sought to, they realized that 100 plus years ago, and they went about the process of making sure that it never happened. Divide and conquer type thing, behind the scenes, wars, splitting things up, setting people against each other, setting governments against each other, intrigue, all sorts of yeah. dirty deals. And, uh, and as we see, uh, as we've seen in the past century, in the past uh, hundred years, over, over most of the 20th century, you had uh, Russia almost completely isolated from much of the rest of the world, uh, at least the the prosperous West, by the Iron Curtain and the East-West divide, the commies versus capitalism, all of these bogus kind of narratives that that very effectively kept Russia contained for most of the 20th century. Right. So they were commies, but they were, are you saying that they were essentially our commies? Because if they help set up that system. Well, there is a lot of evidence, yeah. I mean, I'm sure people are listening who know at least the idea, the concept that the Bolshevik Revolution was very much like a color revolution, an early color revolution, although not the first, because they had been going on previous to that as well. But in 1917, the Bolshevik Revolution was seeded in Russia in Tsarist Russia to overthrow the Tsar and take control of Russia with this phony, bogus, revolutionary group that really didn't represent the interests of uh, anywhere near majority of the Russian people. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but they served the, the agenda of getting rid of the Tsar, changing the entire uh, structure of the country. And in fact, what the Bolsheviks did was destroy uh, Russia at that time. 
they just basically shut down more or less all Russian industry because of their ridiculous, rather nihilistic kind of, you know, political uh, and social ideologies that were just, I don't know whether, I mean, they were ideologically, you know. Mm. But this, that's not necessarily communism. That's, that's the particular ideologies as represented by these, by Lenin and Trotsky and the others. Uh, but they just... You know, this idea of rising the of, of the proletariat, of the ordinary working man, the poorest uh, or, or the simplest or the, the peasants of, in any country. Becoming should, the owner of the means Should of be the owners, mm. uh, the ruler, the runners of the country, effectively. It's just it's totally counterintuitive and it's very difficult to find someone. Uh, if you imagine today trying to find, uh, go and get some, some man or woman or whatever who's working happily as a farmer, for example. Or, or any other what, any other job that some people might call menial or low level or whatever, and they're happy enough in it, and tell them, no, you're not going to do that job anymore. You're going to run a bank from tomorrow. For, uh, from tomorrow, <laughs> you're going to start running this bank. You're going to start running this corporation. You're going to be, you're going to be the head of this corporation. Um, are you going to be in the management structure of this corporation? Um, not only is it a very bad idea because of the skills involved or the lack of skills involved, but also because the general pro- proclivities of people who earn their living through manual labor, for example, uh, those kind of people generally don't want those jobs. They like the idea that there are someone else, you know, dealing with those kinds of jobs or those kinds of issues because they see themselves as being best at, you know, whatever it is they do, you know, uh, farming or... Making you things. Know, making things, you know. They're happy at that, you know. But you take those people and try and put them into some kind of managerial position where they have to decide things. I mean, they're simply not. And this isn't a judgment on anybody. This is simply saying that there are people with different proclivities. So the Bolsheviks were just nuts in that way, you know. It was just a pipe dream, a ridiculous, nonsensical uh, mm. uh, pipe dream that, that, that they had that they tried to impose and it ruined Russia. And I think they may have well, been, may well have been chosen uh, precisely for that. Because it did ruin Russia, and then it allowed Western, um, particularly the U.S., Western corporations and, and banking interests, etc., to get access to Russia because um, they looked to them as their not only their sponsors, but their you know the people who would invest in Russia and give them loans and give them expertise and all this kind of stuff. So it was very much a, a Western-backed coup inside Russia to gain access to uh, Russian society and, and the Russian landmass itself and uh, and to direct its future and that's that's a, that's a, I think that's a very reasonable and um, provable as far as uh, as is possible um, a claim to make about what actually happened mm-hmm. uh, in 1917 yeah. still allowing for the complexity of changes over time mm-hmm. so to say that is not to say that the entire 70 years, Wall Street or whatever city of London or other banking institutes in the West mm. literally decided policy for, for Russia and the USSR. No. What, what naturally happened. They don't have to. We've seen policy. it in more recent times. Um, the US wants to get in a different regime in country X, and they do. And for a while, they do exactly as they're told. But even within the same generation, that very same leader they put in, starts to learn a few things and he starts to go, you know what? Hmm. I'm not so sure about this. <laughs> and yeah. it, it can happen within the span of one single leader's time in power that, okay, get rid of him and there's another coup. Yeah. 
It's possible. But things but naturally drift back to reality they, post-coup. They do, but it depends largely on who has who holds the reins of the uh, of the uh, the economy, who directs the economic uh, progress or development or investment within within a country. If, if, if Western powers or a foreign power has has essentially uh, uh, gained access to, to that kind of control in the country, where they control the purse strings, the actual rulers in that country, in Russia, Stalin, etc., could carry out all sorts of policies. He could direct this, he could decide this or that or the other in many different areas. But if he didn't uh, control uh, the economy, the purse strings, if he was dependent on an outside force for that, well, then it didn't really matter all those other things that he decided to do. Sure, you can take note of them and see where he, where he went and what he did, but they're not really of much significance when compared to the power that is held by those who hold the, the purse strings. Yeah. You know, and one example of this that is pretty shocking, um, and you can extrapolate from this, but after the Bolsheviks, uh, overthrew, killed the Tsar and his family and took control of Russia and then you had a lot of investment external investment from the US and the UK etc into Russia in terms of retooling Russian industry with western expertise and money um, as far as as late as 19 in the 1970s early 1970s during the Vietnam War the military vehicles that the North Vietnamese were using in their war against American soldiers in Vietnam, in the Vietnam War, those military vehicles were being sold to North Vietnam by the Soviets, but they were being made in a factory in Russia that was owned by the Ford Corporation. It's, it's amazing. So the Ford Corporation, an American company, had a plant in mm. Russia that was making military ve- vehicles and selling them to Vietnam to fight American soldiers in the Vietnam War in the 1970s. This is 50 years after the Bolshevik Revolution. So just extrapolate from that if you want them now, to get an idea of the extent to which Russia yeah. uh, internally was controlled from outside at a fairly high level, you know, above the level of, say, governments, because governments come and go every four or eight, or eight years. But someone else in maybe let's say above that in, in banking, et cetera, or investments, et cetera, were, um, were there. Doesn't, doesn't matter which president came along, the same policy uh, continued. Mm. Um, it's, it's always difficult for, um, I think, Americans to understand the role the militaries played in different wars. For example, Vietnam, did they win it? Did they lose it? Was it a draw? What was the objective? I mean, they had a discussion at the time, you know, they were like, what the hell are we doing in Vietnam? Same for Iraq more recently. But if you actually read the way it's termed by the, the people who set the policy, their goal is never to win. They have already won as such. What they're doing is, in their own terms, they're managing the conflict. Right. Well, which doesn't mean to solve or to stop it. The thing that people don't understand is that the U.S. is largely based on many other Western European countries and other countries around the world, uh, depending on where they are. But in particular, the U.S. is its a war. Its economy is a war economy, a military economy. There's vast amounts of money generated through simply having a war. It doesn't matter whether you win or lose. Mm. Because the guys who are, the guys, I mean, the soldiers who die, the American soldiers who die in a war, they lose. 
but the people who are financing it and, and are selling the weapons to the US government to give the soldiers to fight and also to the other side in most cases, selling to the enemy because, you know, uh, the armaments industry is, is equal opportunity. It'll send anybody if you want weapons. It's, it's, you know, it's comp, it's good. It's the American kind of way of life. It's competition. You know, it's, uh, you know, whoever wants to buy my products, here you go. You know, morality doesn't really come into it. Free market, baby. Right. So, I mean, there's a very strong motivation to have war, no matter what way it, uh, no matter what the result is, because vast amounts of money are made for the big arms manufacturers, most of which, uh, or in the U.S. or Western Europe, and and I mean on that point, there was a in the past um, in the past few in the past week or so, there was a an interesting story. It was I don't know where people got whoever they got this got access to the recording, but it seems that um, there was an something called an earnings call on uh, this was in Jan- the end of January this year, an earnings call by uh, Lockheed, a big U.S. arms manufacturer, where I think they get on the line or they have an open open call opportunity for anybody who's interested in doing business with Lockheed or does business with Lockheed can call in and ask the CEO some pertinent questions about their their business plans and how things are going and invest, should they invest in, you know, because it's very interlocked if you imagine how uh, an arms manufacturer obviously sells weapons and they generate uh, an awful lot of money and there are various in, uh, banks and investment institutions who would invest in that in that company uh, and want to know how their profits are looking f- going forward type thing uh, if they're going to make a lot of money this next uh, year Tell us where we can make a killing. Right. And also just because it also has implications for the parts of the world where um, the the weapons are being sold, you know. Um, this part Is this part of the world uh, a good... A good market. A good market, basically. There's still a good market there, and therefore you're, you're going to be able to sell a lot of weapons. These people make a lot of money, and our investments with you are going to... Uh, what are the prospects for long-term war? Pretty good, actually. Exactly, yeah. So uh, this happened on January 27th, and it was Lockheed Martin. Um, and the chief executive of Lockheed Martin, uh, a woman called Marilyn Hewson, was fielding questions. There was one question from a guy from uh, Deutsche Bank, which is a German bank, but it's, uh, it's an international investment company at the same time, and it does offices everywhere, and it does a lot of business in the U.S. And this guy, uh, his name was Miles Walton, so he called um, called in and asked a question, and I'll just let you listen to that question right now. Thank you. Our next question is from Miles Walton of Deutsche Bank. You may begin. Thanks. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, first, first one is a clarification. I might have missed it, but the international sales in 2014, uh, I think the last few years have been about 17% of sales. If you can just give that number for 14. And then, Marilyn, as you look at the Middle East as a as kind of a, a customer base and you think about the threats that exist there, that's one aspect. But the foreign policy and what we choose to do, there's another. And just, you know, hypothetical, if, if the U.S. does move more toward the normalization with Iran over the nuclear activities, does that in any way impede what you see as progress in the foreign military sales front there? Uh, from a DOS perspective. Thanks. Thanks, Miles. Well, first, in answer to your question, we achieved 20% of um, our total sales on international sales 
in 2014. So we're, we're pleased with that, and we have over $20 billion in our backlog at year end to that. We set a new goal to get to 25% over the next few years. Uh, our growing international area is, is an important element of our, our strategy and, and growth for the company, and we see a lot of de expanding demand for international growth, you know, expanding demand on missile defense, on on aircraft programs, on a, a range of things. To your question about foreign policy and normalization and things of that nature, in my discussions with our customers, that, that really isn't coming up. I mean, it's very clear to the Middle East region that that dialogue is going on. But, you know, front and center for them are the needs that they have today, what their critical national requirements are today. So our discussion is that is around those national security needs that they have, and there are certainly plenty of threats in the region. You know, just the volatility, even if there may be some kind of deal done with Iran, there is volatility all around the region, and each one of these countries uh, believes they've got to protect their citizens, and, and the things that we can bring to them help in that regard. So similarly, you know, that's, that's the Middle East, and I know that's what you ask about, but you could take that same argument to the Asia-Pacific region, which is another growth area for us. A lot of uh, volatility, a lot of instability, a lot of things that are happening both with North Korea as well as some of the tensions between China and Japan. And that, so in both of those regions, which are growth areas for us, um, we, we expect that there's going to continue to be um, opportunities for us to bring our capabilities to them. Oh God! Please translate that for us. So she was that was that was the CEO of, of Lockheed Martin saying that uh, to this investment banker from Deutsche Deutsche Bank, who was a bit concerned about the U.S. government talking having these peace overtures towards uh, Iran, making a deal with Iran where everything's going to be. Um, you know, friendly, on friendly terms, and that would have implications for the rest of the Middle East. Uh, the, the serious implications from the investment banking point of view is that there would be some kind of outbreak of peace, that there would be no more need for war. Yeah, that, that would threaten that, stability of profits. Right, there wouldn't be no volatility anymore, you know, and she was uh, responding to him by reassuring him that volatility will remain, you know, that she's been talking to her customers, uh, i.e. The, the nation states in the Middle East, uh, but also one of her customers, her biggest customer, is uh, the U.S. government, obviously. So when she talks to them, she knows what they want, and you know. Uh, so she was quite happy, <clears throat> happy to to um, to calm him down and, and say, "Don't worry about it. We're going to still make an awful lot of money through war. Uh, the Middle East, okay, Iran might go a bit peaceful, but you've still got a lot of." a lot of war and volatility in other uh, Gulf states, and she went over to Asia and said, you know, and said about uh, There's an emerging market. tension between China and Japan, Japan being a client, essentially a client regime of, of the West's uh, uh, since... Since forever. Since the middle, at least the middle of last century. Um, so you can rely on this volatility and this war. Don't worry too much about that because it's all going to be good. So if you... I mean, if you look at that from from that perspective and the way these people are talking, that's their that's their motivation. That's their prime directive is to make sure that weapon sales continue to as many people around the world as many governments around the world as possible. Uh, 
i.e., and, and, and to justify those weapons sales and weapons purchases by those uh, governments, you need to have conflict. I mean, there's no point in selling weapons if they're not used, right? People can't just buy lots and lots of bullets uh, of missiles. Otherwise, they won't get next year's model. Well, they won't upgrade. Well, they won't. Well, they won't need them. Uh, they don't need to restock. You can't just sell someone a million bullets and never sell them to again. Except never sell to them again. They have to use those bullets and then come back for more, more, more bullets. So, and obviously this um, makes a lot of money for the American economy because it's a big U.S. corporation. Uh, the U.S. government therefore is invested in war, in conflict, no matter of whatever stripe happening around the world, because it supplies by far the most weapons. It's the biggest arms dealer in the world, the U.S. government, essentially, uh, in, in league with these U.S. corporations, U.S. corporations, U.S. government, same thing. So if you want to uh, have a very simplistic, although very true uh, explanation of why the world is embroiled in war for so long or why the U.S. has been at war for 227 of its 239-year history, uh, the answer is money. It's good business to have war. The fact that millions of people die is inconsequential. They can know it again. Well, they keep every more of them. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. It's nuts. Don't have it's, it's, like a, it's like a sick kind of global hunger games, you know, where there's an architect of the game and there's people in it and they whether they want to or not, they're going to participate. Yeah. Um, so twisted. Um, the Brits, meanwhile, they had a massive... Well, yeah, I was going to say, just on that, as an example of how you generate this conflict, uh, I mean, we just said that they like to generate conflict so they can sell weapons and make money. Um, there's a report just uh, ago from the Pentagon or statement from the Pentagon that they had lost track of $500 million worth of arms in Yemen. You know, the U.S. has been decamping from Yemen over the past week or two um, because of conflict there. They've been taking their their personnel, embassy personnel, out of Yemen. Um, uh, that's because they were booted out of the embassy yeah, by the rebels. <laughs> so the Pentagon is unable to account for more than half a billion, half a trillion Oh, sorry, half a billion dollars in U.S. military uh, equipment, um, inclu- including aircraft, um, all sorts of different, uh, what else was there, small arms, ammunition, night vision goggles, patrol boats, vehicles, and other supplies donated by the U.S. government to, to Yemen. And they're worried about who, who has this now. But they're not really worried about who has it. They're happy that someone has it and that they would use it to create a conflict in Yemen because then they'll have to... Uh, fund uh, the other side, whoever is using these weapons against uh, whatever whatever party in Yemen, they'll, they'll be giving weapons to, to that opposing side. So it's all good from that perspective. Um, but this is presented as, oh, we made a mistake. You know, you didn't make a mistake. mistake you know? Or if you made a mistake, um, you weren't, the reason you made the mistake, quote unquote, was because you didn't really care about the results. In fact, you're quite happy about the results. You know? Yes, it's just this ridiculous notion that people have that, that the government is trying to prevent conflict. It's trying to create conflict all the time because that's how it makes money, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like a butcher. It's like saying that a butcher 
uh, your local butcher in your local town is going around is going around the town handing out <coughs> vegetarian uh, leaflets leaflets about vegetarianism and trying to convince the townspeople to go vegetarian. A butcher isn't going to do that, and it's a good analogy, especially the word butcher. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, stuff going down in Yemen this week. Uh, there was some massive terror attacks that killed, like, I think over 150 people now were killed mm-hmm. in quote unquote suicide bombs mm-hmm. in mosques in the capital that's been taken over in the last few months by rebels, which the West is going out of its way to say are Shia, mainly of Shia origin, Houthi rebels. Don't mind that. That's just a religious epithet added on so that they can I'll yeah. come to in a minute why they want to do it. They're Houthi. Houthi's named after one of their commanders of the rebel force. I mean, they're supported by Nasserite organizations. Yemen used to be a, a base for the Egyptian pan-Arab ideas in the 60s and 70s. So these guys are basically want a normal country back. And they wanted rid of the guy who inherited in 2012 the U.S.-backed regime. It was Saleh. Now it's a guy called Hadi. They, um, they took over the capital, Sana in January, I think, no, later last year. And re- a couple of weeks, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, this guy, Hadi, fled the capital. No, he was put under house arrest and he escaped. And he went to the south of the country in Aden. And uh, he initially resigned, probably at gunpoint. But then he said, no, no, I'll take that back. I'm still the ruler of the country. And lo- the the Houthi forces, they probably use some of the war material left by the U.S.-backed regime Possibly. because they launched airstrikes targeting Hadi this week, probably with U.S. jets. There are now. And lo and behold, the U.S. says it's pulling out. And this, this is a massive wave of terrorist attacks mm-hmm. in the capital, Sana, which is Houthi-controlled. Mm-hmm. Who is it? It's oh, it looks like ISIS has just taken a hold in yawn, Yemen. Yawn, ISIS or Al Qaeda or both? Oh, we're not sure. Al Qaeda. And the absurdity of it is that Hadi is then going, oh, oh, the people who did this, who are country, they obviously they hate life and mm. liberty and blah blah blah. But he can't say it's it's the enemy because his enemy is the Houthi rebels. Mm-hmm. Because that's absurd. Why would they do it in the capital they now control? Mm-hmm. So what's going on? Well, there's an external force coming in called ISIS or Al-Qaeda, whatever you want, that is there to uh, fight against or smear or uh, make these uh, revolutionaries effectively look like terrorists to give support to the previously or the recently ousted U.S.-backed president. So these are these are very clearly people who are intervening in this conflict on the side of uh, the Western powers interested in Yemen. They've intervened and they intervene in the way they always do, which is to bravely go and and plant some bombs in mosques and slaughter innocent people. That's that's the nature of these people and the people, the individuals who do it, and the people that uh, them and uh, control them and pay them. Uh, that's their nature. That's how brave. That's how. That's how you know special they are. They're really, they're really upstanding members of the human race. Really, you know, they they take delight. They think they're really brave and really cunning and really smart when they either 
you know, open up uh, a machine gun fire on innocent men, women, and children, or blow them all to pieces in a, in a mosque. You know, yeah. What badge of honor maybe for that? I don't know. Congressional Medal of Honor. I don't know what they should get for that. But it's real, real honorable stuff. And it takes a lot of bravery as well, you know, to kill innocent women and children. So that's what that's what's going on there. And the strange thing is, is that these Houthi rebels, uh, Yemen has been these previous uh, tin pot tin pot uh, sultans propped up by the by the West, installed and propped up by the West, were extremely corrupt and had uh, there were a large section of large sections of Yemeni society were uh, impoverished and you know. Basically, there was no spending on infrastructure and social services, etc. And that's the origin of these Houthi rebels um, who, who rose up to essentially demand freedom and democracy. So by the U.S.'s script, the U.S. should be supporting these people. Of course, they can't. They, don't, they, don't, they won't support them. They don't want to support them because the U.S. isn't really into freedom and democracy, despite what it says. Uh, but at the same time, they can't uh, openly attack them for the same reason, because it would look like uh, extremely hypocritical, because they're demanding essentially civil rights um, and social justice. So when the U.S. can't act directly against uh, a group of people inside a country who have taken power and are demanding justice, they act obliquely. They act through proxies. Yeah. It is... Uh it is how it's done, and this is particularly important. Oh, Jesus. Uh, all regions are important to them, but this this place, if you look on a map where this is, right next to Saudi Arabia, the Houthi rebels have no... They know exactly who the, who the problem is and how it all works. They're aware that the problem is coming in their region from Saudi Arabia, right next to them. Saudi Arabia is the dominant player in oil in the region, and mm. they also know full well that ISIS slash terrorist organizations are funded via Saudi Arabia at least. Mm. So, uh, and the added twist to this, all this thing about peace overtures with Iran, you, you get an idea of how much of a charade it is. Yes, the dominant background religiously of people in this Yemen are Shia. The propaganda inside Yemen and it's being reverberated in the West is that Oh, because Houthi are mainly of Shia origin, therefore they're Iranian. Hadi, the ousted leader, who won't quite give up, he's trying to rile and incite sectarianism in his own country by saying, mm -hmm. now the Iranian flag is flying over the capital, Sana. Mm -hmm. And whatever support is coming from Iran, it's going to be menial. What can they do? I mean, they're surrounded by U.S. forces all over the place. Mm -hmm. So this is pure or largely propaganda. Mm. I mean, can you imagine, you're Iranian, how are you supposed to seriously deal with these people when you're being, the knife's being stuck in your back six ways around you, mm -hmm. and, and they're coming to you and saying, oh, here, we'll do a deal with you. We'll, um, you know, let you have your nuclear program in, in 10 years if you just play ball. Let's be friends, yeah. Let's be friends. By the way, uh, yeah, the nuclear thing, Obviously, it's such a contrived and farcical issue because, I mean, countries, Russia is going to build nuclear reactors for Egypt and nobody's batting an eyelid. So that's not the issue. Everyone knows that in Iran. 
the issue is to use it as some kind of leverage against them so that they don't turn inwards and they don't recognize their place as part of a Eurasian community. Hmm. The sweetener in this is that the, the US or the elites who are the powers that be have this reality creating fantasy that Iran will replace Russia Iran slash Saudi Arabia will somehow replace the Russian energy supply to Europe. Mm. That's their vision. Or at least they can become a, a competing partner and then that becomes a leverage you can hold over Russia. Mm. That's what's going on. It's, it's this management of, that's why it never makes sense if you try to understand it on its own, mm. only in the context of other issues like containing Russia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Look where, look where Iran is, you know. It would be, it's a big country, you know, there's um, 80 million people. Um, it has a lot of resources. It would be a big player in the Middle East if uh, things changed there. And Saudi would be sidelined. And this is why Saudi has this kind of like real hatred, or appears to have this real hatred. The Saudi monarchy has this hatred for Iran, you know, because they see it as a bigger, more powerful competitor. Uh, to Saudi and its privileged position and Saudi has a very privileged position in the Middle East and the world um, as you've seen when you see all the pictures of the Saudi princes coming over and holding hands with Bush and Obama you know kissing kissing, kissing they, each other on they the really lips. get it on yeah they get it on uh, who knows what goes on behind, behind closed doors like when they hold hands in public but anyway um, doesn't bear thinking about it but um, they in 1975 the Saudi struck a deal with the US to for the creation of the petrodollar, where effectively the U.S. said to the Saudis, who at the time were the, really were the dominant, um, in the, uh, during the Cold War still, they were the dominant supplier of oil to the world, to Europe, to America. Uh, and the U.S. government struck a, a deal with the Saudis to sell that oil only in U.S. dollars. Mm-hmm. And the Saudis, because of their, because of, their strength in OPEC and in, in the group of countries that sell uh, oil or exporters of oil, um, they were able to influence the others to agree. So OPEC became, we all agreed under the ages of Saudi to sell oil to most of the world um, only in US dollars, which was a real boon for the US. And uh, the, the benefit to the Saudis was they were given, they were given lots of loans, all sorts of um, ways and means to ensure that Saudi Arabia maintained or, or was maintained as a as the preeminent power in the Middle East <clears throat> and that the Saudi regime royalty would stay in power and the U.S. invested lots of money in Saudi Arabia, gave them loads and loads of weapons and arms, etc. and gave them all a very good, a ridiculously affluent lifestyle and positions of power and privilege in return for selling only their oil only in dollars. Um, well, but so they, w- they would lose out if, 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 if the petrodollar ever... Fair, even if the, if the system was changed uh, on a grand scale, the Saudis would lo- lose out. They would have to take their position uh, amongst the, the nations of the world, a more equitable position among the nations of the world based on their own, on the nature of the country itself, its resources, etc. And they would lose in that situation. And they don't want to lose. And they see Iran as a potential threat to that. Yeah. So does America. Uh, but America is playing this different game, like you just said, which is they're trying some kind of rapprochement with Iran to let's be friends instead of let's uh, let's have you always as our enemy, who are who we are, you know, trying to f- scare the world into believing you're going to nuke 
uh, you're going to get a nu- nuclear weapon and, and, and bomb somebody. And Israel is obviously playing a, a, a very high-profile role in, in spreading that fear-mongering that Iran is going to wipe the Jewish people or destroy the Jewish people or wipe us from the pages of history or blah, blah, blah. And that gets a lot of sympathy as well, you know. You have to, you have to be concerned about the existence of the Jews, obviously. So, um, and there seems to be a division there where the U.S. is apparently willing to try and have a reproachment with Iran, but the Israelis are, no, we don't want to go there. Because the Israelis, remember, are right there in the Middle East as well. If, was, if the whole system in the Middle East was changed fundamentally, the Israelis would uh, find themselves in, in a difficult position as well, certainly one, uh, certainly a lesser position than they enjoy today. So they're all afraid, basically, of losing power, losing their privileged positions. And they can get quite, uh, quite violent, you know, when they when they feel that these types of people they they they're kind of like cornered rats, you know. Yeah, they get very afraid. I just want to expand on what happened in the seventies. It wasn't just a deal where you will only, as head of OPEC, you will only do oil trade in dollars. It was a kind of a symbiosis. It was freaky. The, essentially, the British and American and Saudi economies merged to a pretty deep level because the massive jump in profits in oil that they got as a result of the probably orchestrated oil price jumps in the early 70s, it meant that they had all this cash, all this profit from mm. the sale of oil and didn't know what to do with it. So the city of London and Wall Street said, well, you just come and invest it mm-hmm. with us, yeah. stay with us. And it became this kind of symbiotic yeah. creature. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was more than just a petrodollar. It's more than just a vague concept. It has real. Well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. I mean, it means that each is dependent on each other now in a fundamental yeah. way. One goes, we all go. Yeah, they prop each other up. I mean, obviously, the benefit to the U.S. Has, from the petrodollar has been immense, in the sense that um, everybody needs oil. Oil is priced only in dollars. Therefore, if France, for example, wants to buy oil, first of all, it has to buy dollars. So it goes to the U.S. Treasury uh, or the the Fed and says, I'd like $5 billion, please. And the U.S. uh, says, okay, well, what will we get? How are you going to pay for those? And France has to pay for it in some tangible assets, Um. And, and it does so, but the U.S. simply has to fire up the printing presses and churn out a bunch of paper. Yeah. So, I mean, that gives the U.S. essentially a free ride on, in the world economy. Um, it was a massive benefit, and it was only for them, essentially. And like you said, when they increased the oil prices, the U.S. was happy to see the oil price go through the roof during that, that period. Um because it meant massive uh, profits for Saudi Arabia, oil-producing country, countries, uh, who then, like you just said, invested a lot of those profits in America, yeah, which was good for the American economy. And then it was a although it hit. wasn't then invested in actual infrastructure, it was sent no. into these casinos of Wall Street and London, well, and used then to get a better return on on the profits they could make by further exploiting other parts of the world, right. It became this liquid hot cash that was a yeah, it's, it's a the weapon. Military, it's a weapon. That's how they 
tied everything up, covered up, so all that kind of stuff went, you know, who knows what it went to. It went to funding the CIA, went to funding the national security state. And uh, it went funding terrorism. Well, yeah, that's part of it. Uh, but it also, like I said, the kickback was that Saudi Arabia got massive uh, loans, massive uh, um, uh, infrastructure investment from the U.S. in return, and it got favorable weapons deals, and essentially it was, you know, a protectorate in the Middle East of America. So, yeah, it was a, it was a sweet deal. And they don't want to lose that, you know. So any intimation of any change in that structure in the Middle East uh, scares the crap out of these people. Well, and they're willing to do anything to stop it from happening. Well, last week, it was a weird story. I was like, what's going on here? They had Prince Charles mm. come over to Washington. Yeah, on a camel. <laughs> dressed up as Lawrence of Arabia. Charles of Arabia. To have an informal chat with the White House about... How he sees, how does he, th- how does he see relations with the Gulf monarchies and Saudi Arabia? How are things going? I, I don't know what the outcome of it was, but well, <laughs> the British government, not the government, but the the Britain's permanent government, let's say, not the actual administration or cabinet, um. For a good 30 years now, I've had Chuck Charles, sort of like a, a friendly diplomat, mm. you know, and yeah. the, the emissary to Saudi, he's, Kuwait. He's, he's gone beyond his official remit of just a figurehead and, you know, uh, emissary uh, for the great British people uh, around the world and to make them all look good and noble and, you know, upstanding as they are, obviously. So um, he seems to have, you know, he spends a lot of time. He has a relationship with the Saudi uh, and the Gulf state monarchies and even in Bahrain and uh, Brunei over in uh, in Asia. Uh, he goes around because he's a royal and they're royals. So it's like, you know, but if his real royalty rubs off and they're phony royalty and they feel good about it and stuff. But apparently Obama thinks, uh, or the, the U.S. government thinks that Charles has in these conversations, you know, where they've been doing a bit of smooching, drinking some tea, that kind of thing, that he's leaned some, maybe... Maybe he's got some pillow talk. Well, he's got, there's some pillow talk and maybe a bit of uh, inside information, you know, was divulged, you know, or he has their confidence, essentially, you know. I mean, it's almost like a throwback to the to the 100 years ago when um, the monarchs and uh, uh, Edward VII, for example... Or, and then George V in the, at the beginning of the 20th century were used in a similar capacity by the the lay, uh, the politicians, the lay power brokers. Uh, they were those monarchs were used to interface with other monarchs in Europe. For example, uh, Edward VII, in uh, you know around 1910 or so, 1905-1910, he was used to smooch up to uh, his cousins or his relatives who were was the Tsar in Russia, the Kaiser. Uh, they're also related, related to the Habsburgs in Austria. Um, they're all interrelated uh, in bread, and they all, you know, they, they were used, they were sent out to do some deals, you know, you know convince them. Because I think the, the royals didn't really like, they, they looked down on the, although they weren't as smart or capable, they also looked down on the politicians, you know, but they really shouldn't have because the politicians were far more devious than they were, you know. Uh, so it was your royal was used to interface with other royals and to leverage whatever uh, pressure or whatever you could put on him and, and on to others in his country, you know, to get mm. what you wanted, you know. 
But just talking about going back uh, about that history, and I, I was saying I wrote that article. To, it was it's obviously a revisionist history. Well, there's a lot of uh, books on revisionist history these days, and it's you know genuine revisionist history, as in it marshals they marshal facts and data that paint an extremely different picture of, for example, the 20th century. I mean, we can safely say that our understanding or the understanding that the average person has of the history of the 20th century is fundamentally and profoundly flawed. It's just totally wrong, effectively. Mm. And just, I mean, it's there's evidence to to make that case, but it's almost that the lack of evidence or the evidence of a lack of evidence is more compelling because there's a story that came out a few a couple of years ago in 2013. Uh, it was in The Guardian, and the title of it was A Foreign Office Hoarding One Million Historic Files in a Secret Archive. So the story basically is that the Foreign Office, the British Foreign Office, unlawfully hoarded more than a million files of historic documents that should have been declassified and handed over to the National Archives, i.e. made public. Uh, most of the papers are many decades old, some going back to the 19th century. And they document in fine detail British foreign relations throughout two world wars, the Cold War, withdrawal from empire and entry into the common market. Um, <laughs> this is, you know, to give you an idea, this for, the Foreign Office's secret archive is estimated to hold 1.2 million files and occupies around 15 miles of floor-to-ceiling shelving. 15 miles of shelving. Um, That's a lot of incriminating documents. People call it staggering. And they've deliberately against official policy kept all of these documents secret, and they span... It's more. They are more than likely the most important, uh, you know, exchanges, um, memos, diplomatic uh, messages, etc., um, and more. A million files we're talking about um, over the course from from the 20th century, from the major events of the 20th century that have shaped our world today, and they're being kept secret for some particular reason. Now, that's what I mean by the the evidence of the lack of evidence. I the evidence that they're withholding evidence is in itself the strongest evidence to back up the argument that our understanding of 20th century history is completely flawed and the little bits of details that we do have to point to that being true could be and should be able to be or should should be uh, backed up by another million documents mm-hmm. uh, and therefore presented as could present conclusive proof of, of that argument but um, they're secret. So, sorry, yeah. you're not getting them. Yeah, it's interesting that what's, what's, you know, what's compelling us to fundamentally rethink recent modern history is, like you said, this, this change, this what happened last year in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Because when you can see in real time the making of a false history, you go, well, hold on a minute. Hang on. That's just crazy. It hasn't happened. But wait, it has happened before. And you start to dig and dig and you realize, oh, it's not just that it's happened a bit before or something. It's how it's always been. Mm-hmm. The, the, the extent of the chasm between the reality presented and actual reality is as deep. Yes. 
hence uh, from, hence the need for a revision, revision of the 20th century. And where it's leading us today, what you conclude the article with a warning. Well, given the way it's been shaped, this history, and given what's going on today. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the efforts that these people went to um, to gain control over as much of the world as possible, to dominate as much of the world as possible, you're clearly talking about people who have a very particular psychological makeup, you know. I mean, I still, I can't grasp it myself. I can see what they do, but I can't imagine, I can't put myself in their in their shoes and I ever see, imagine myself thinking that way about the world, you know. I mean, if you, if you just think about it, uh, what would ever possess you or can you ever imagine yourself being in a position where you are, where you desire to influence, you know, the, the, the course of the lives of millions of people or will you decide that you're going to uh, overthrow the government in this country and are you going to have a war in that country? Let's have a war there. So you're looking at a map and you're just you're drawing lines on the map and saying, yeah, we'll go in here and we'll do this and then this will happen here, you know, and that's, and you're, you're working with the entire globe there. And uh, we'll fund both sides and we'll, we'll keep talking to both sides. No one of them will think we're an enemy. Right, exactly. We'll yeah. be a friend to both. Yeah, we'll lie to everybody, basically. I mean, it's a very particular psychological makeup. Uh, I mean, there's a, there's a quote from um, one of those type of people, uh, Cecil Rhodes. He's the, the source of the Rhodes Scholarship um, uh, that, that people like Bill Clinton and various uh, high-level politicians and presidents were on. Um, you know, it's funny. This guy actually, you know, created a, a scholarship, and our scholarship was created in his name because he's such a a great guy. But um, one of the, the the quotes that actually um, sums up <laughs> that kind of mentality is um, he said. Apparently, he was out one night looking at the stars, and he says, "To think of these stars that we see overhead, these vast worlds which we can never reach." You might think some kind of philosophical, deep, soul-felt kind of comment was going to come there about the smallness of, of a human being and the vastness of space. But no, he says, I would annex those planets, planets if I could. I often think of that. It makes me so sad to see them so clear and yet so far. And this, you know, look up Cecil Rhodes and you'll see a lot of views. Obviously, he's a flaming racist as well. You know, he was... Uh, he decided that the, he figured that um, Africa needed to be civilized completely by the white man, and the more the white man, the more the British white man uh, expands his influence and his presence around the world, the better the world would be. Um, but yeah, this guy is looking up at the stars. So I mean, my analogy or my imagination or my, my vision of these people looking at a map and mm. um, and deciding the fate of millions of people and changing countries and changing governments it doesn't go far enough because obviously Cecil Rhodes he. he Planet, the world wasn't big enough for him. Yeah. He was looking up at the stars oh. and yearning to yeah. colonize and annex the planets. Yeah. <laughs> Earth is like, it's just easy for him. What's astonishing is that in the timeline you've given in the article that sets this off, the British Empire comes out of splendid isolation where they don't give a damn about who's their friend or not mm. and makes Japan, which is on the other side of the planet in the late 19th century, a friend, and mm. then manipulates it into a war with Russia. Oh, 
open air, mm. practically near the Bering Strait. They can, and they can do this from I'll London give, 120 give, years ago. I'll give you another analogy. Another analogy for these kind of people, uh, the comparison uh, between us and them, effectively, is, you know, I don't know, 18-year-old boys in a, in a, in a schoolyard uh, and their ability to manipulate and control the six or seven-year-olds. I mean, this is something that people probably... Uh, have experience of or know of as part of common culture, like where older boys will, will manipulate younger boys and get them to do bad things. That seems to be the way, from a psychological perspective, there was this difference in maturity, but it's a pathological maturity, a difference in level of cunning and deceptiveness and malevolence and deceitfulness um, that these people had that allowed them to um, control and influence and manipulate their peers in other countries, like you just said, in Japan. I mean, these people had, not only had they that ability, but they had the strong motivation and belief that they could go around the world, and they should go around the world and bring everybody uh, to heal, bring governments, no matter who it was, bring them all under their control. Mm-hmm. And they have that naturally. For some, Somehow they're brought up with this idea, and it's in them to go and do that. And that makes them extremely uh, unnatural. It makes them very unhuman even, even because the vast majority of human beings don't feel that way uh, in that way. Uh, sure, human beings manipulate and deceive other people, etc., but the scale of it and the belief, the firm, firm belief in that I have to go around the world and then as much power as possible for me, that ambition matched with or married with a, a essentially you know, a psychopathy, a psychopathic mind, is it is it very dangerous as we've seen uh, as the history of the world yeah. attests a dangerous combination and um, so these are the kind of people they're dealing with these are the kind of people who uh, plotted the kind of control of the domination of the globe and they did it a long time ago and they got a good run at it they had a good uh, a good run at doing it over largely over the course of the of the 20th century and now they find themselves uh at a time when they thought that their their plans would all be coming to fruition and they'd be able to, you know... They thought history had ended. Lorded over everybody, essentially. Yeah, we've, you know, we're, we're done. Um, this guy, Putin, and the Russian government comes along and uh, somehow is able to not uh, just fall over or roll over in the face of this. Uh, and it seems that it just takes... Uh, what it comes down to is a person... The nature and a person, a person to come along and somehow manage to get into a position of power without being completely corrupted and have or a co- different yeah. or co-opted and a different vision, to have a different vision, to maintain a different vision of the world, a more benevolent vision of the world than these other people who have controlled the world for so long. And that is enough, apparently. I mean, any country could do that if it was big enough and had such a person rise to power. Anybody at any time could have come along and um, theoretically uh, said no to the to the Western elite that were controlling the world. But uh, it, it appears that the, uh, a person of such caliber and where fate would be, uh, the stars would be aligned, and he would he or she would rise to a position of power uh, happens very rarely. But it seems that it happened in in the case of Putin uh, in Russia and. All was all that was necessary was the will uh, in that kind of a person to to say no 
and he's been saying no for the past 15 years. And this is something that's thrown these Western uh, elite rulers of the world types, uh, thrown them for a loop. They're not sure what to do, and they've tried everything, as you've seen over the past uh, few years. They've tried every which way to demonize Putin and to shame him, uh, trigger him. Uh, <laughs> and it hasn't been working because he's not, he's not one to be shamed or to, to be manipulated or to be coerced or to be diverted from the path that he's chosen. He's saying, well, I've chosen a path, a path that uh, goes against your chosen path, and I have the resources uh, to, to push it, you know, to, to, to make a good go of trying to, to make it a reality to go in a different direction. And I, and I can also try and uh, gather more resources to me to do that, and I'm intent on doing it. I'm not interested in being corrupted. I don't agree with your ideology. So I'm going to go, go a different way, and I'm going to see if anybody else wants to come with me. And that's the one thing that they never expected, apparently. These people mm-hmm. in the West never expected that someone would come along and do that. Uh, they thought that everybody was corruptible or co-optable or whatever, or that they had everybody under the thumb already. Or if they suspected someone's going that way, right. they usually got to them and right. killed them. Right. But very often there have been people who have come along who have expressed such ideas or such desires, but they weren't the people, they, they were missing certain aspects of their of, of their character, of their personality, let's say, that would protect them against that. Maybe they didn't have enough information, they weren't, uh, they weren't as aware of the nature of what they were up against. These yeah. psychopaths and uh, these ambitious psychopaths in the West. Well, they got a glimpse, but then they forgot. Well, they, might, or they just weren't able to go there because a lot of people aren't able to go there, yeah. aren't able to conceive of this monstrous, uh, the depth of the, of the depravity of the, of the, of the perfidiousness, uh, you know. And so people don't expect things come out of the blue and they get taken out. You know, I mean, you could you could say. Various different people, but you know, Benazir Bhutto was one, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think those people just didn't have the the skills, essentially, uh, the awareness uh, to protect themselves, to see whatever ideas they had, benevolent ideas or different ideas they had come to fruition or make them come to fruition, uh, because uh, they weren't smart enough, essentially. But Putin has a lot of the right qualities. Uh, maybe most important is is that awareness, that understanding of the nature of his enemy. And coming from an intelligence background, he would have been steeped in that kind of a world, and he's used that to his advantage to protect himself mm-hmm. and to carry on the policies that uh, he wants to carry on. And these people are very, they're really foaming at the mouth. I mean, that's the impression. If there was one expression I would use to characterize what has happened in the past uh, year or two vis-a-vis the West and Russia, it's just this this tidal wave of foam coming out of the mouths of Western politicians towards Russia and ridiculous, hysterical, nonsensical stuff. I mean, it's been laughed at all, all over the place. Even people who are, you know, maybe aren't on the same page as us and all that kind of stuff are, are, are kind of making fun of this, his, these hysterical outbursts from, from powers that, that they're so childish and puerile, you know. Uh, you know, Putin shot down M817, he killed all my children. I mean, come on, I mean, no rational person is going to, is going to accept that, you know, and say, and, and not call it ridiculous. And here, when I say rational people, I'm saying there's not a lot of them around, but there's still a few, you know. <laughs> okay. I mean, the people who read the gutter press in the UK, for example, the Sun or the Mirror, those rags, um, or even the Times, another rag, uh, where it says on the front, uh, on in big black bolt letters on the front of the gutter press in the UK that a lot of people read and believe. People who maybe haven't developed their brain power very much. Uh, where it says, Putin killed my children. You know, that's a very 
categoric statement right there, and it was based on the message, simplistic message being transmitted into these people's brains was that Putin was a killer. You know, the details of, well, Putin didn't really kill your children. I mean, somebody blew up a plane on which your children were, were, were in. Uh, the line of culpability to stretch it immediately right back to Putin within a few hours of it happening is ridiculous. I mean, why would you do that? These people don't engage in that kind of uh, thinking, right? But this is, the powers that be that produce these papers know that. And what they want to impress on these people is Putin's a killer. Putin's yeah. a thug. Mm-hmm. He's a bad man. He's a poopy head. So go around and take a poll in the UK today. What do you think of, poop? What do you think of Putin? He's a, he's a, he's a thug. Have, have you any evidence to back that up? No, I just think he's a thug. Right. And that's how it works. That's yeah. where their, the thought process stops there. Yeah. There is no more. Can you explain why? No. I hate him. Why do you hate Putin? <clears throat> I don't know. Because <clears throat> he kills people. Well, can you name me any people that he killed? Yeah. Well, no. But I know he kills people. You know, when you're dealing with that level of thinking or that lack of ability to critically think, what do you what do you expect? Like, you know. But anyway, this is people are this, these are the things that these people are doing to try and demonize Putin, right? To, and not just leaving it to the press, but they're coming out and making statements themselves that are extremely hypocritical and are laughable, you know. <clears throat> and when they're challenged on it. And some people in the U.S. State Department, State Department at these press conferences have been challenged by reporters there. They, they, they make fools of themselves trying to explain what their, their statements, you know. Like Putin, Putin's being aggressive. He's, he's, he's trying to colonize, you know, Europe. Yeah, but you're, you're the one who first sent uh, expanded NATO to Russia's borders. No, he didn't. Yeah, Russia did. came <clears throat> closer to us. R- Russia somehow came closer to NATO. No, I think you'll find if you look at it that you actually went towards Russia. Well... We're going to leave that question and move on. I mean, that, that's the level of discourse. And, and for them, those intelligent people in the U.S. State Department to expose themselves or leave themselves exposed to that kind of ridicule, to me, says extreme desperation. So getting back to the point, these people are extremely desperate. They're rulers of the world. They have ruled the world for so long. And just at the point where they thought they were going to enjoy the fruits of their, you know, long machinations and manipulations to control the world, somebody like Putin comes along and the people around him in Russia and they spoil the party. And these people are very annoyed. And not only do they spoil the party, but it looks like they may be an actual real threat to the positions of power of these people, these ambitious psychopaths in the West, that it could all go completely wrong for them and they may end up on the dirt heap. Uh, you know, the things that prop up their positions like the the kind of the petrodollar, the control of the Middle East, you know, hegemony and control of, uh, of of other countries around the world may all be slipping from their grasp. And these people will lose their positions of power. And they're deranged. You have to understand these people are insane. By normal human standards, they're actually insane, but they still function very highly. So you can't uh, try and find a rational uh, understanding or, or explain what they're doing rationally. You can't really get inside their heads. You just have to understand that they are insane in their drive to maintain their positions of power. they You could say to them, listen, why don't you just drop it? You've had a good run of it over the 20th century. Yeah. It all went well, but now... You, know, you can still be re- dominant in some areas. Right, but uh, reality bites here, and you're going to have to take a step down and take a, take a demotion, but you'll still be extremely well off. You'll obviously have a lot of money, whatever. No, those people, that's the last thing they would ever accept. They will not accept that. They have worked hard to be the rulers of the world, and they are not intending by any stretch of the imagination, to take a cut in pay or power.
So what do they do? They'd like to maintain those positions, but what if they can't? What if the writing is on the wall and they see it in some vague way that they just feel, okay, this is getting desperate, we need to do something. What's left for them to do? Are they going to have a nuclear war? I don't think they're going to have a nuclear war. The reason why I don't think they'll have a nuclear war is because I don't think a nuclear war was ever on the cards. And this is, uh, I can't back this up really other than citing some kind of a not very political, <laughs> politically correct or, um, or, or maybe even for some people believable um, evidence. Um, it goes into a, a slightly different uh, domain and that's the domain of uh, extraterrestrials and ufology. Yeah. But in Richard Dolan's books, uh, he cites examples of during it might have been during the fifties or sixties that over that he there are military reports that uh, UFOs appeared over U.S. Uh, nuclear uh, silos, nuclear silos, and twist everything off. Mm-hmm. And my extrapolation and my interpretation of that is that um, it was made clear to the ruling powers in the U.S. at the time and in other places around the world, maybe in Russia and other nuclear nuclear uh, power nations that. Uh, they were not going to ever be able to decide to fire or to launch a, a nuclear war. Uh, in fact, the message was nuclear war is not on, on the cards. The threat of nuclear war is the tool that you use. That's where that's your that's the the most uh, the most important aspect to nu- nuclear weapons is the threat. And you can hype up the annihilation and the potential for the world to be destroyed and all that kind of stuff. And well, you will get everything you want. In terms of controlling the people, which is the main goal here, it's not this fighting between oligarchs or between you know people in positions of power. The ultimate, the real con- point of, of, of the the control system, control system on this planet is to control the population, mm-hmm. and the threat that you can promote of nuclear annihilation will give you the power to, to to do everything you want in terms of control of the population without Short ever without actually. ever having a nuclear war. Right. Right, and because in fact the idea of a nuclear war would be completely counterintuitive or counterproductive to what we want to do is we want to control the people, not wipe them out. We're farmers; we don't go in and riddle with bullets, riddle all our cows with bullets, slaughter them all, and throw them on a slag heap. I mean, we farm animals for profit and for what we get for them. We don't blow them all up and leave ourselves bereft for, of. For, of yeah. There's another aspect to it. I mean, the, the most common theme of the abductee phenomenon in the 50s, 60s, and to this present day. Um, oh, a lot of it's silly. But nevertheless, the pattern is always there. It's the same message, more or less. They're being told, we're here to protect the free will of this planet to prevent a yeah, nuclear saying, war. If something doesn't change, nuclear destruction is coming on your heads, blah, blah, blah. People showing images of a, of a destroyed world and, you know, we need to bring peace and, and get everybody needs to be... But that simply had... A, I mean, that's the same message that was coming from the government, effectively, yeah. which was that, you know, the world's on the brink of destruction at any moment. So when, you know, Obama picks up the red the hotline and says go or he himself pushes a button and launches some you know that's nonsense um, that that the impression of that threat or the, the reality quote unquote of that threat was always there and was promoted to people and was promoted by uh, so called UFO uh, abductees you know who were told by aliens that this was the future awaiting us if we did not do something about it so that was just you know promoting the that, that fear based 
kind of uh, manipulation, you know. Um, but so the point is... They okay, can't so, go there. So no nuclear weapons, no nuclear war. So why That's do they why have? we see everything short of it. Regime change, subversion, all the way to these very expensive campaigns to set up phony opposition years in advance, set up elections, get your party in, control both sides. Mm. They will do everything possible. But they can't go there, right? So they can't. So no, no nuclear war. So the question is, what is left uh, in the armory or up the sleeves of these people in Western, who are the rulers of the world, have set themselves up as, as the rulers of the world, the, the dominant power in the world? In the face, what's left for them to do in the face of this, this pressure they feel of, of a change in the system coming or, or being planned by Russia with China with the new. Asian Investment Bank, a replacement for the IMF, the BRICS alignment, blah, 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 that there's a change in the order coming and they're going to lose. What can they do about that? They can't stop it from happening because the only way they can stop it from happening will be to bomb them all, but they can't bomb them all because conventionally Russia can defend and they wouldn't win that kind of a war. It wouldn't change much. Nuclear war, everybody dies. They're not allowed to do it anyway. So what's, what's left? The only thing that they have, the one thing that has leveraged their position for so long as rulers of the world is what we talked about earlier the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency, and the petrodollar, i.e. the U.S. economy. What's it based on? It's based on the dollar. It's, that's the fundamental aspect of, of the U.S. economy is, is currency. So the one thing they could do, as I imagine, is to crash the U.S. economy while the rest of the world still holds large amounts of U.S. currency and is largely dependent in this interlocked economic system mm. as set up by and controlled by the West. They're largely dependent on the U.S. economy remaining afloat for various different reasons, one of them being that they hold a lot of U.S. dollars. Although they may not want to. That's they the don't way want it is. to, and China has been trying to divest itself of U.S. dollars recently. Over the past year, it's got rid of like billions and billions, but it still holds over $1.1 or $2 trillion. Other countries hold large reserves of U.S. dollars. If the U.S. point is, if the U.S. economy went down, everybody would be affected. You'd have a serious economic, global economic crisis, unlike anybody's ever experienced. Worse than 1930s Great Depression, all that kind of stuff. It would be a catastrophe for everybody. And they see that as well. This is our last desperate move. This is the last thing we can do, which is to destroy uh, the U.S. economy as a means to destroying the rest of the world and the opposition that we feel from Russia and China and the BRICS and stuff. Bring everybody down. And the analogy I used in the article I wrote was that uh, a chess player who sees himself uh, a few moves down the line is going to be checkmated. Mm. And he's not the kind of person who likes to lose. So rather than being checkmated, before that actually happens, he swipes all the pieces off the board, turns the board over, kicks the table out the window and says, well, I didn't lose. Or he sets it on fire and then he screams, fire, and everybody has to get out of the building. Something like that. But the end result is he ruins the game for everybody, for both players, or all, all players, <clears throat> uh, as a as a as a way to avoid losing. And when things get back, you know, when you put the table or get a new table and get a new board, or whatever, you say, "Well, the only way we're going to resolve this is we have to start again, start from scratch." And that's the that would be the effect of destroying the, the global economy, which is uh, reliant and hinged to the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency, as petrodollar, etc., and all the interlocking kind of uh, mechanisms they have that are controlled from the U.S. and from U.S. bankers, etc. Uh, they control large parts of the world economy. They could very easily, I mean, if they wanted to, they could destroy the economic, global economic system and hope that, you know, because when 
when there's major economic crises in country, uh, very often what happens is the government is replaced. It's, it falls, it resigns. There's because you know you're talking about food uh, scarcity, uh, pensions not being paid, uh, salaries not being salaries paid. not being paid, companies closing down, savings being wiped out, runs on the banks, people charging into the banks to get all the money. Banks close the door. Sorry, nobody's getting anything. In the U.S., it would mean the evisceration of the uh, social security of the of the pension funds. Um, all U.S. Um, government uh, public employees, of which there are several million, I don't know how many million exactly, but a lot, they would all have to go home. Government, everything would be shut down. All government agencies would be shut down. Um, obviously, companies that rely on the government for a large part of their contracts, like, arm, well, maybe not, we have problem, well, armaments com- arms companies might do better, but agricultural companies, etc. Um, basically, a lot of layoffs, a lot of shutdowns of factories, the, the knock-on effect of, you know, food deliveries, Department of Homeland Security coming into cities and distributing food, people starving, people looting, uh, the, you know, the police force, the police state forces in the in the U.S. coming and, you know, having pitched battles with people. Yeah. So basically the worst nightmare that so-called conspiracy theorists have been warning about for some time would be actually be on the cards in this situation. Yeah. And they, the powers that be, will presumably be prepared for the synthesis or the the new order that would emerge from it, mm-hmm. which would, of course, involve a hell of a lot of brute force because you have such chaos, especially in the U.S. Yeah. You know, one world government... Uh, an agreement by whatever governments are left afterwards, governments that have been overthrown, Russia government overthrown, you know, Chinese government overthrown, different people put in power, a whole new world order, and everybody agrees that the way the economy was managed uh, previously with the whole, you know, subprime crisis and all the crises in the banking system was all just rotten. That's what caused this whole collapse. We don't have to put a new order in. Let's have, well, what about no money? What about a, a system of, you know, we have technology, let's have it all electronic, you know, let's not have actual cash anywhere, you know, uh, justify that in some way or other. Um, and, you know, chips, you know, they're already doing it, implanting chips in people's uh, skin, you know, to make it easier and stuff. You know, you can see where that would go, you know, under the stewardship of, of, of these kind of, um, uh, these types of people, psychopaths in positions of power. Uh, it would be horrible, you know, they would uh, they weren't. They would inaugurate a, a, a kind of very dark, dystopian, uh, 1984 type, uh, much worse than 1984. In fact, uh, uh, society, global society, a globalized society where everybody uh, was under the one system, effectively, a one world government in in in, yeah. in in all but name, or even in name. I don't know if they'd call it one world government, but they might try and maintain the semblance of some. Sovereignty in some way or other, but everybody would sign up to one system to prevent this horror from ever happening again. I think that looks like where it's going. Crikey. Now, but people have been saying this for some time, but it's, I mean, if you you wanted to predict, Alex Jones, when's it coming? I think the, um, I think the time is ripe right now for it and I think plans may be being made right now for it uh, to happen 
Yeah. Um, the U.S. in the past maybe two or three years, the U.S. has gone above uh, 100% debt, 100% GDP, uh, debt to GDP. Uh, I, the U.S. is bankrupt. Officially went, officially technically went bankrupt in the past two or three years. It's now at 105%. The U.S. government owes you know, 18... More uh, than the value of its economy. More than the value of the U.S. itself. And it can't do anything to increase its value because it has outsourced all sorts of jobs and um, uh, and it also can't uh, do anything to reduce its spending to stop at least the debt increasing because a large part of the reason for the debt is the, the warmongering and the sending of military around the world and financing the military. And they they have to keep doing that because that's the way they... That's the way they maintain their control, you know. So, um, yeah, it's kind of game over as far as the U.S. economy is concerned, you know. I mean, there are other countries that are above uh, 100% debt to GDP, you know. Uh, not many. Uh, I think Italy is one of them, mm-hmm. 120%. But very few, just a few of the major world economies are, are above that. But the, none of them are in the position of the U.S., you know, in terms of size, its influence, and its effect on the rest of the world. So it's much more scary that the U.S. would be effectively bankrupt uh, than any other country. Um, interestingly, Russia has only 10% debt, which is kind of a good position to be in right now. Maybe. I don't know if it'll help any, but can't hurt. <laughs> Jesus. The, the, the thought of Russia-China being embroiled in this to the extent of being part of such a totalitarian system is, I mean, that would, that would definitely make it global. Um, yeah. But we're, we're talking about a scenario that could be so chaotic that it would have similar kind of upheaval in those two countries as well. Yeah. Okay. But possibly less in terms of, I mean, all of the sanctions uh, over the past over the past year, um, that have been imposed on Russia and what it has forced Russia to do in response to divest or di- um, what do you call it diversify uh, in terms of its uh, the business deals that it does with different countries and to basically get away from its dependency forced a forced uh, removal of to some extent of Russian dependency or involvement with the Western banking and capital system mm-hmm. may actually work to its favor. This is and this is the, the, this is the kicker. You know, this is the irony in it, in that in their efforts to destroy Russia, they may actually be helping Russia uh, to be in a better position to survive what they're planning to do to try and destroy Russia. And then what? Russia becomes the new head of the new world order? No, not necessarily. No, I mean, I'm just saying Russia may not suffer. Uh, Russia okay. and other countries may not suffer. Uh, in the immediate consequences, uh, in the immediate con- consequences, in, in quite such a, a, a negative way, it may it may fare a little better. Yeah. But in terms of the ultimate point of a new world order, I don't think uh, it's going to make any difference. You know, because Putin's going to die someday. You know. Yeah. Nothing lasts forever, Neil. I know. I know. I think the main take-home point is that he's not going to die someday. He's going to retire the, someday. The chaos of such a scenario. Is will create all kinds of unpredictable things. It'll be awesome to behold. <laughs> It'll be awesome to behold. Um, 
and therefore you can't say how it plays out. I mean, will like the powers that be who are currently camped in the U.S. just decamp, use Europe as a base again? Well, no, they don't decamp. If they're going to decamp, they'll decamp into their bunkers or something if they have to. But I mean, they'll be surrounded by the best of the best of the U.S. police state forces. You know, I mean, those people well, long ago have they'll still they'll still be getting paid. Yeah, and somehow. Like, well, they don't need to be paid. Those people are beyond money, you know. Um, they have their own kind of a, well, their own private economy, effectively. You know what I mean? Hmm. I'm sure they've thought about all those things. I mean, those people don't uh, leave anything to chance in terms of their own uh, their own well-being. That's that's preeminent for them. That's the most important. They are the most important people in the universe, type thing. So, uh, I'm sure they've made lots of different plans, you know, for uh, for that kind of a scenario. Like I've been back in maybe 2009, before 2008, 2007, uh, there was reports about strange work going on at Dick Cheney's house mm-hmm. uh, underground in his basement, some major, major excavations going on. Creepy Creedy. Uh, yeah, Creepy Creedy was creating a, was creating a bunker for himself in, in one of his, of, of his, pla- of his uh, houses, you know. Um, so I'm sure these people, yeah, they think that way and they, and they make plans and they have the resources to do that and to protect themselves. But it's all... It's all for, for, it's all pointless, it's all futile anyway because of the ultimate threat, really, you know what I mean? And, and the fact that there's a power in this universe, or the universe itself is, uh, has, a, has a plan for the planet and it has a recurring plan for the planet, which is that when things get so bad and it looks like um, this is a failed experiment essentially under the stewardship of psychopaths and power that we just wipe the slate clean and start again. No harm done. Nothing ever began, nothing ever ends, just go around and go around, and around in a cycle. And uh, the point is, this is a playground, uh, a school uh, for people to learn and grow. And if it goes all, if it all goes wrong and the system has degenerated to a point where it's not possible for people to have a broad enough range of experiences and if it turns into a slave planet, you know, where everybody who's born in this planet is immediately in chains and going down the mine just to spend their whole lives chipping at a rock face, well, that's... that's um, subverted the point, the grand kind of universal point of life on planet Earth, and at that point you just wipe the slate and start again. You know, the Earth will be remade anew with lots of birds and springs and, you know, uh, valleys and meadows and stuff, and the first humans will come along and they'll all start again. We can all come back for another go. Oh my God. (laughs) That isn't fair. Thinking about it. that's, That's, whatever that is, that's some ways off. But the immediate thing is is probable chaos. I mean, listen, people, you, you've already don't be so shocked because you've had this in a slow motion to this date. I mean, everyone's suffering economically. Everyone's feeling the the almost you can almost taste the psychopathy in the air where it becomes okay to think torture's good. For example. Yeah. I mean, when you have to really live with that kind of thing around you, it's like, ugh. So you're aware of it. But the only take-home message here would be that that will profoundly deepen in a sudden way to the point where there's serious, serious dangers, especially if you live in a city. Yeah, and I think the people I, I, I feel the sorriest for are people who fall into one of two or both categories. Uh, the two categories are people who are completely clueless about this happening and they're just living their lives, particularly people in, in affluent affluent countries where they have everything, they continue even today to still have 
everything they need and they're living a high life and they think the world will continue as it is and they're completely dependent on the system and they tend to be authoritarian followers and they look to authority for protection. Those people are in a very bad position um, because they lack the awareness of what's actually going on. They're completely oblivious to any of this, to any of the, you know, the the downward trend of, of in the global situation and where it's likely to go. And they're also completely completely unprepared in a personal capacity for, for dealing with it when it happens. Uh, they'll be completely dependent on psychopaths and power to feed them. Can you imagine? You'll be ignored. Um, or worse, you'll be thrown into a prison camp. And those people will just be completely caught, unawares, shocked, in a state of shock, by it, and they won't be able to move, and they won't have the resources to move or, or do anything about it because they're, particularly, like you said, they're living in big cities, and they won't. Uh, they're dependent on on the system. Uh, so the people who, at least, you can still be in that position where you live in an affluent country and you're living your life normally, but if you have that awareness of this possibly going going to happen or coming down the pipe, you can. Even just in your own mind, you can take some practical measures to kind of like prepare for something like that. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but even even more important is the awareness that that could happen because it primes you to 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 to, to be prime or it makes you prime to do something or to take some action, not just to sit there bewildered and say, mm. "Oh, just sit shelter in place and the government will come and save you." At least those people are not going to be uh, blinded by that kind of ridiculous belief. Uh, the other people who are in a better position, I think, are people who who have suffered, who who are have lived most of their lives in poverty and have had to rely on their own resources to feed themselves and to and and have developed skills to to survive in uh, quite hard conditions. Those people uh, are in a better position because they'll they'll immediately be better better able to deal with, uh, uh, you know. For some people, it might not change much, you know. I mean, the, the effect on uh, on the upper middle class American or European or something like that uh, would be devastating uh, because of the fall in their quality of living and the, and the conditions of their life. But that uh, might just bring them down to the level of uh, someone in, in India or Africa that they've been living with their whole life. So for some people, it may be like, yeah, oh, well, nothing's really changed here, you know. It's still shit, <laughs> you know. Um <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I would. Uh, so the people that are listening to us, obviously, and, and uh, they're most of them are in the in the in the former in the in the first category of being fairly uh, well off and able to provide themselves a roof over their house, a job, all that kind of stuff. Uh, those people, obviously, if you listen to the show, you're being uh, you're being given this information, and uh, you have it in your own head, or you had it already, probably. And uh, that's very important uh, to have that awareness, to know what to do, to be prepared for something catastrophic coming down the line in terms of social chaos. It's extremely important not to be shocked by any of that. You will be shocked, but not to be so shocked that you're immobilized and that the only thing you can think of doing is waiting for the Department of Homeland Security or the equivalent, the government, whatever, to come and help you. Because that's the last thing you'd be thinking, because you'll know that when this happens, the government is going to use it to gain more control over you. Yeah. Because the people who run the government will be 
Complete and out of control freaks. Yeah. Like they always are. Absolutely. They're, they'll freak out. I mean, this is any, in any country, you know, they're prepared to do this. This is what they do best. When there's social chaos, they know what to do. You know? Uh, the, the thing they do most easily is like John Lennon said, you know, when they get you violent, they know how to handle you. Uh, so that's what will happen in most developed countries, first world countries, whatever you want to call it. Uh, the government will swing into action and say, don't worry, we're here to handle the situation. We know exactly what to do. And in the U.S., a lot of people will take up arms at that point. Well, the fact that, you know, there's 300 million guns in America, <laughs> it doesn't augur well. I mean, people think it's for their own protection and stuff, but uh, in that kind of a scenario, it's not really good because it'll make the situation worse. People in countries where there aren't such, there isn't such a proliferation of guns will be in a better position because the, the, the potential for that kind of a real social kind of a violence and, and, and bloodshed between this force of the state and the ordinary people isn't there. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah. Interesting times ahead. Yeah, I think it's, you know, Laura, Laura, uh, her history of these kinds of times in the past. Um, she always talks about some of the signs and wonders that happened then. Mm. And, uh, yeah, we, we have had a few glimpses of it. Of course, we've no, talked about fireballs and some really, really large chunks of something coming in the atmosphere. These, these days, they're doing the impossible already. Mm. I mean, well, they're, they're, they're being seen and filmed. They've been picked up by cameras mm. for up to a minute through mm. the atmosphere. I mean, physicists would have said, no, that's just impossible. It can only last one, one or two seconds. But every day, I'm, I'm, I'm reading something that is, quote-unquote, physically impossible. Uh, a few days ago, there was a massive um, aurora in both poles. They said as a result of a, a big solar flare. It wasn't a particularly big flare. But whatever combination of conditions exists at the moment, the aurora in both Borealis and Australis, north and south, was really strong. Mm. And it came way further south than normal and way further north in the southern hemisphere. Um, and I thought it was interesting that around the same time, uh, NASA put out a story about the first ever aurora seen on Mars. Mm. It was actually picked up late last year. It wasn't at the same time as this one last um, week here on Earth. But holy mo- it, they were astonished because they said it was physically impossible. Because Mars doesn't have an atmosphere. It doesn't have an atmosphere, but it doesn't have... Um, or an atmosphere that would produce aurora. It doesn't have a magnetic field, they right. thought. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It doesn't have a magnetic field. And they're just jaws dropped, apparently, when, when the data came in from, the pictures came in from... Well, it just got one, apparently. Maybe it bought one on eBay or something. It's just picking up. They said it was a glowing pink aurora, and it didn't just, it wasn't like a flash. It covered the entire span of the planet, mm. just as we have. The electrification of the solar system. Something like that. They also noticed the spacecraft picked up dust clouds a thousand miles up from Mars, also a first Hmm. in the last few months. Well, speaking about space rocks and things coming from space onto the planet and stuff, um, that's another useful aspect of this um, standoff with Russia, with the implied potential for nuclear war. 
uh, is that you know if uh, if a big fireball or something or a bunch of fireballs happen to land you know in the US or or Europe or somewhere like that you can imagine that they might say well given the kind of stuff they've come out with about MH17 and uh, blaming Russia if they could blame Russia for you know shooting down planes with no evidence um, then they can certainly try and uh, blame Russia for firing a a nuke. A, a nuke at uh, at Europe or the US when it was actually a, a chunk of space rock, you know. I wouldn't put it past them, put it that way. The State Department can say all sorts of things that you would never believe, you know, that you shouldn't believe. Mm. If there's still a State Department at that point, because this is where things, the, things go non-linear and no, in this chaos. The, there's yeah, but the la- that's the last thing to go, though. The, the propaganda outlets, the mouthpiece of the government, you know. That'll survive like cockroaches to the very end. Oh, shelter in place, shelter in place, because they have to keep communicating with the population right. where everything else goes down. It's like listen to your government, you know. The emergency wireless, emergency, yeah, emergency broadcast system. Emergency yeah. broadcast system straight out of, you know, and Jen Psaki, it'll be her voice, you know. She'll come back to... Playing in the she'll, loop. She'll, oh be, she'll be promoted uh, talking about uh, the Russians invading Ukraine. And shooting down planes and firing nuclear missiles um, and shelter in place. Uh, yeah, there's a funny story actually. Uh, it was included in the article that you wrote just recently, just on the hysteria about Russia. Uh, Lithuania, which is on uh, up in north uh, eastern Western Europe, northeastern Western Europe, uh, <laughs> um, they there was a trains. Uh, there's little. Uh, enclave or Rus- part of Russia that's more or less in Western Europe, in, uh, right on the Baltic Sea there, um, beside Lithuania. And it's separated from Russia. It's an enclave, a Russian enclave. And there's a lot of Ru- Russians come over from there into Lithuania to Vilnius, the capital and stuff, to do shopping. And recently, because of this whole hysteria that's been going on a year, uh, a year or two, there were trains came from Kaliningrad, which is the Russian enclave, um, and they stopped in the station. But the Lithuanian a foreign uh, office or uh, State Department, whatever you want to call it, they uh, announced an alert, uh, a major kind of alert that the, the Russians may be invading because on this train that came across from from Kaliningrad, there were a lot of military age, this is what they said, a lot of military age men. Uh, so they stopped the trains, got people on board, and checked everybody, and they announced it as a possible Russian invasion. <laughs> Covert Russian invasion, plainclothes young Russian men. Of course there was other people, old ladies and children and stuff, but there were men, Russian men on there. Uh, but finally they had to uh, cancel the alert and, you know, stand down the armed forces, all 15,000 of them. Uh, because it turned out they were just planning to invade some Lithuanian shopping centers for the latest uh, Nike goods. The latest Nike goods, yeah. So that's an example of the it's just, you know, hysterical. I mean, the only thing you can say the planet has ascended into hysteria on so many different levels, you know. And uh, worse is it worse hysterical, or from another perspective, is it priming? Well, it's priming, but I mean, when someone primes you to be hysterical about something, you know, to, mm-hmm. to run, to, to start screaming at you, to, to get inside because the sky is falling, are you gonna, are you gonna go with it? Or are you gonna? I mean, why does saying our heads not prevail? Why does anybody take up this hysteria that is project being projected or promoted from, 
from particularly from the US, you know, towards Europe trying to hystericize all of these people. Why do they even, why do they respond to it? Why do they accept that it's ridiculous? You know, I mean, to, to the level of thinking that just the same train that comes every day from Kaliningrad to, to Lithuania might be an invasion, a covert invasion on a commercial train with, yeah. you know, but, Russian soldiers disguised in plain clothes using, that was their invasion? Really? Yeah. Who, the, the reason I hysterical. suggest the reason I suggest none of agency and deliberateness to this is that at the very same time, tanks are pouring into Latvia and other ports in that part of the Baltic region. And the plan, the U.S. CENTCOM for Europe, their plan is to go on a massive convoy, basically a parade, show off U.S. troops. Right. So you're saying they're trying to the Baltics down Poland. Come close to, or maybe into Ukraine, right. and then come back to home base. So what do you Germany. mean? You mean is that they're trying to? It's the governments in those countries and in league with the, with, the, with the U.S. trying to prime the population. Yeah, to right. accept this on the basis of projecting that which doesn't exist, but meanwhile, right in front of their faces is the actual invasion. Yeah, well, so they don't mind being invaded by NATO. The, I, it's the only. The elite NATO being U.S. military, it's the only time when the U.S. military will ever or has ever been welcomed with uh, flowers. What do they call it in Iraq? With uh, welcomed with, uh, they would be welcomed as liberators. Mm-hmm. You know, that's about the only time they were. Well, maybe the Second World War here and there, but um, yeah, they're crazy. I don't know if those if those politicians in Europe actually believe it themselves or whether they know it's bullshit and they're just promoting it to the population. Who knows? A bit of both, you know. I'd say, but I would say that some of them are really nuts. Like some European leaders are just crazy. They are. Yeah. They're. Some are just crazy, but I think they're disturbed. For a large part of, they have everyone by the nuts. I mean, you can see the French government wants to say one thing and has very cagey about how they say it. In other words, they don't really want to be on so clearly anti-Russia. I mean, alone today is saying Russia's our friend. Uh, it's a big country. Mm-hmm. Putin's the leader. I mean, what are we supposed to do? I, I'm going to deal with him. He's not on board. He's not saying the right things. But he won't go the whole way and then condemn what's going on because no. his country is... Beholden to... Oh, they can't get out of it. Mm-hmm. The planet is jerry-rigged in large part because of what we're talking about, mm-hmm. the dollar. Mm-hmm. the power of yeah. the U.S. currency. Yeah. But there are other factors, too, other layers to it. The military, once you're a member of NATO, your military structure is NATO. It's, it's compromised. Yeah. It's part of the same centralized system. Yep. Um, and it goes on. There's industrial espionage, um, that whole Stuxnet mm-hmm. thing. Blackmail. Blackmail. They've got information on you. Yep. They have IT systems in of major corporations in every country probably control by the U.S. I mean, at that level, the Internet itself is questionable as to what exactly it is. All Internet traffic is routed through the U.S. Mm-hmm. I mean, they have the world by the nuts. <laughs> so that's why, that's, I think, is a large part of why nobody says what they really want mm-hmm. to say. I think what they have on French President Hollande is that they have pictures of meat and flan. Meat and flamby. Flan. What's flan? <laughs> Well, he's made fun of because there's this like flan, which is a kind of yeah. je- jelly kind of dessert, you know, and, and they make fun of him, comparing him to this kind of like wibbly wobbly jello type thing, you know, it's called flanby. So he's called flanby, you know. 
Not much of a rigid structure there. <laughs> no, no, he's not, he doesn't have a very, not much of a backbone, let's say. And uh, I think the this the NSA has pictures of him, you know, uh, talking in the loads of flan, and that would just be horrible. And social media, he would be destroyed, you know. His career would be over. Because it's all, it's all speculation that he's, you know, fond of a flan or two. Anyway, um, I think we'll, um, we might... Uh, go for an alternative take on well we haven't actually addressed the topic yet but we don't because we're not the experts in it. our expert in pop culture is our friend Relic and he's back again with all the latest news take it away Relic It's Relic here again, bunkered in for the evening in my little log cabin on the snow-swept shores of Upper Lake Canada. Winter's in full swing here in my part of the world, and, well, judging by all the crazy cold weather I've seen around the globe so far this year, I'd say this place is starting to look almost tropical. So, let's see. What sorts of news has appeared on my radar this week from the infotainment superhighway? Breaking news. Members of Hollywood's inner circle gathered at Comedy Central Studios this week to poke fun at heavily tattooed Calvin Klein underwear model and former pop idol Justin Bieber in what critics are calling a brutally honest roast of the 21-year-old monkey-wearing bad boy toy whose breakout hit One Less Lonely Girl brought high-fructose corn syrup ear candy to an entire generation of 11-year-old girls. Hey, Mr. Bleeber, while you're at it, how about singing One Less Crappy Pop Song? Oh, well, I have only one comment, really, to make about the roast of Justin Bieber. Tastes like chicken! Uh, Heck, I'm I'm not sure what that even means, exactly. Let's leave it open to interpretation. Our second story of the evening concerns Titanic movie superstar Leonardo DiCaprio and pop diva Rhiannon. Now most folks are probably aware that this singer Rhiannon was named after a very nice Fleetwood Mac hit song from the 1970s. Whereas one can only surmise that Leonardo was named after one of the lesser known Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Anyways, the TMZ television program is reporting that Mr. DiCaprio and Miss Rhiannon are currently dating each other because the two of them were photographed together last month at her birthday party. And everyone knows that any time celebrities are photographed together at birthday parties is rock-solid, clear-cut, undeniable proof that some shenanigans must be going on behind the scenes. 
TM said, known for its objective, hard-hitting journalistic standards, seems oblivious to the fact that the newly bearded Wolf of Wall Street was seen earlier this year with half a dozen scantily clad supermodels drinking wine, smoking vaporizers, and partying on the beach at St. Bart's. Maybe this is what David Bowie would call an example of modern love. Well, whatever the case may be, we hear it behind the headlines can only wish the happy couple a long, successful, drama-free, monogamous relationship. Right. And if you believe that, I have some beachfront property on the moon to sell you. <laughs> In other news, Cinema Blend is reporting that the Mad Hatter, actor Johnny Depp, was injured on the set of The Pirates of the Caribbean Part 5 when a strange young man dressed up in pirate regalia barged onto the soundstage brandishing a knife. It later turned out that the man in question was actually Johnny Depp himself who came onto the set wearing his Edward Scissorhands costume and apparently forgetting which film he was supposed to be in. Production continues. Meanwhile, over at Fox News, several of their brain-dead talking heads were quite upset at the Oscars this year when, when the Clint Eastwood film American Sniper was snubbed by leftist Hollywood when it didn't win the Academy Award for Best Picture. The movie tells the patriotic true story of psychotic mass murderer Chris Kyle, who bravely assassinated up to 255 complete strangers from a great distance away. According to the pundits at Fox, American Sniper is not an obviously racist propaganda film, but a pro-American classic that left Vice President Joe Biden leaking saline water from his eyeballs. What Fox forgot to mention was that the movie wasn't snubbed entirely and actually did win one Oscar for Best Sound Editing. And that's because there's no sound that Americans know better than that of a good old made-in-the-USA freedom bullet tearing through the flesh of a dark-skinned Muslim person overseas. True story. And lastly, at the Paris Fashion Show this week, high-profile male supermodels Hansel McDonald and Derek Zoolander took to the catwalk to announce the beginning of production for the movie Zoolander Part 2. Without much further ado, I give you the Derek Zoolander Center for Kids Who Can't Read Good. What is this? A center for ants! What? How can we be expected to teach children to learn how to read if they can't even fit inside the building? Derek, it's just a... I don't want to hear your excuses! The center has to be at least... three times bigger than this! We all love the first Zoolander and can only hope that this 
no movie will keep up the fine comedic tradition of portraying supermodels as the vacuous, superficial, albeit ridiculously good-looking empty shells of human beings we all know and love them to be. Well, that's all for now, kids. Until next time, it's Relic here, raking in the coals of my old wood stove and saying, always remember to keep your feet on the ground and your eyes on the stars. So there you go. Thank you, Relic. That was another fascinating pop culture roundup full of insightful insights into the world of pop culture which is probably part of the reason the whole planet's going to be destroyed in the not-too-distant future. Justin Bieber, he's, he's to blame, him and his ilk. <clears throat> anyway, um, I think we'll leave it there for this week, folks. Um, thank you for listening. Uh, enjoyed the show. And uh, thanks again to Relic. We will be back uh, next week with another show. Uh, we hope you'll join us then. Same time, same place. See ya. Have a good one.